0: listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Will Brantley, professor of English at Middle Tennessee State University. His book, Feminine Sense and Southern Memoir, won the Eudora Welty Award for Interpretive Work of Scholarship and Modern Letters. In Feminine Sense, Dr. Brantley looks at the autobiographical works of Lillian Smith, Zora Neale Hurston, Eudora Welty, and other Southern women authors. As well, he has written on the FBI's 134-page file if they kept on Lillian Smith and her activities. Today we will speak with him about that file and its importance in our understanding of Smith's life and work. Thank you for joining me today Dr. Brantley.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Yes, I am very excited about this. I know that you actually spoke here in 2016 before I got here, so I didn't get to hear what you had to say. So I'm really interested to kind of dive in and talk about, you know, Lillian Smith and the FBI. Because that's one of the things that kind of popped up to me when I was reading some of Rose Gladney's, you know, letters that she collected Mm -hmm. in '43. But let's get right to it. So you published the article, "The Surveillance of Georgia Writer and Civil Rights Activist Lillian Smith," another story from the Federal Bureau of Investigation way back in 2001.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Um, What led you to looking at the FBI's file on Smith? How do you?
1: Two books on the FBI and writers, one by Natalie Robbins and one by Herbert Mitgang, and neither included Smith. Even though, as I point out in the article, her file is longer than some uh, better known writers like Ernest Hemingway, for instance. So I thought it could be revealing to see what was there. And through the Freedom of Information Act, I acquired the file. It took me a long time to (laughs) learn how to read it. (laughs) And it it took a while. That was in the early 90s. And the article finally appeared in uh, 2001. Uh, It was published by the Georgia Historical Quarterly, which I think was a really good place, uh, a good fit for it.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned that her file kind of sits in between and between Hemingway and and Steinbeck. And I was was kind of shocked about Hemingway. I I would gather Steinbeck having a file, Mm -hmm. but Hemingway kind of threw me. I hadn't heard about that. I
1: don't know Hemingway had many leftist connections, yeah. and, and was tracked. Also, they didn't all appear in the recent um, biography of him, but I, I would imagine they're all there in the file, <laughs> or most of them.
0: So, so how do you think you know learning about Lillian Smith's file provides us with a broader understanding of the surveillance that the FBI did that the FBI did on specifically civil rights activists and individuals that we know of, like Martin Luther King Jr. We know the FBI's file on him and what they did. We know about James Baldwin's file. We know about what they did at the Black Panther Party and their files on them. So how do you think us learning about her kind of helps us understand these as well?
1: Well, in her case, it was a prominent white Southern liberal who uh, Hoover felt might be Manipulable uh, could be manipulated on behalf of his attempt to tarnish the civil rights movement, which he saw as something that um, could not take place in his 48 years as the seat of government. So I think that uh, gives us a window into how he would approach, her file gives us a window into how he would approach someone uh, like Smith, although there weren't many other people like Smith. Uh, um, There were other well-known white Southern liberals, but Smith, as you know, uh, is very distinctive in in, uh, being an ardent anti-communist, but also an unapologetic liberal.
0: And it's interesting that you said that he thought she could maybe be manipulable, right? Right. Because that reminds me of the way that the FBI infiltrated the Black Panther Party and what they did right. there, of course, with Fred Hampton and, and everything. The whole COINTELPRO. Right. Right. Um, and I, I would never, I could never see her, what I know about her doing that, <laughs> even <laughs> if she was offered. But that leads me to the next question because because you mentioned that she, you know, was a was a white Southern woman who's who's liberal, of course, too but you, and I forgot her name, Pam, Pam Brewer. Pat Brewer. Uh, yeah. Pat Brewer. Sorry. Point out that Lillian Smith, you know, and this is as, as Brewer puts it, both carried her Southern heritage as a banner and wore it as a protective shield while doing battle with almost every aspect of Southern culture, you know, and how did Smith's southernness, and I think that you point this out in your article and her womanhood, you know, help to shield her from some aspects of the backlash from individuals like Georgia Governor Ellis Arnold mm-hmm. or Atlanta Mayor William Hartsfield. Uh,
1: yes, she um, she would write to the parents of campers to let them know that if they wanted a row from their uh, daughter's camp director, she would provide that, <laughs> which, of course, they did not want uh, so she could use her Southern womanhood um, to advance her, her causes. I think that's what you're saying, right?
0: How did kind of her being a white Southern woman of means,
1: uh-huh.
0: you know, specifically kind of protect her and shield her from, from some of the things that could have happened to her?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. Um,
0: because she uses her womanhood. I and mean, we see her. does doing- no, and
1: she would show up at events, and they would be expecting something else. And they would see that she was well dressed, <laughs> that she looked like Park Avenue. She said in one letter, and they would let her speak. Maybe um, she, you know, she would use whatever was at her disposal to advance her causes. And that's one of the most interesting things about Lillian Smith. She uh, she was a very experimental writer. She uh, she she would use her uh, her success that came from Strange Fruit and her fame to, to advance her causes. Yeah, and she- even though she found the fame difficult and said it was the worst thing that could happen to, but it did give her a platform that she probably otherwise would not have had. It sent her to larger publications, not always the publications she wanted to be in, but to larger publications than South today, Right. I, I don't know that that's answering your question. It's an interesting one. though. How did she use her Southern womanhood to advance her, her causes? That's definitely worth thinking about.
0: Well, it's, it's something that I've, that I've thought about, especially after seeing a clip from Hal Jacobs documentary, I think where she's on um the Today Show on NBC or something, but, but she definitely carries with her that white Southern woman of means, you know, that kind of air about her and she uses mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. and she knows how she's using it. And I think that she's purposefully using it. And I c- I can see that helping her and protecting her from some of this backlash, you know, Probably. that could have possibly come, especially if she was a white woman of lesser means,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, so I just, I just think it's kind of a really interesting from a rhetorical perspective for mm-hmm. me, how she does this and why she does this and what benefits it serves her, even though she's speaking out against, you know, this ideal white Southern womanhood. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, she's countering it with how she presents herself, but what she says
1: through it, too. By being a completely articulate and right. um, Southern woman, but saying things that you don't anticipate hearing from <laughs> that voice
0: right and that that leads us back to kind of the FBI the fbi file um so it seems kind of my understanding that the fbi or at least the georgia bureau of investigation started surveying smith you know in 43 um when did when's the earliest thing you saw in the fbi file was it 43 44 do you remember
1: Uh, that i'm not sure the um from yes 1943 december 9th 1943 yeah a, um, a memo to hoover himself
0: and i haven't seen anything specifically from the gbi which is the georgia Bureau investigation but i know that they were tracking her because she says it
1: yeah she makes references to them and how much she's loved by them <laughs> right
0: so uh, i don't know when that even started but but there's a specific incident in 1943 Involving the winter 1942 43 issue of South Today, which was the right. course that she published with Paula Snelling. Right. And this is an issue which Pat Brewer argues um, that we could say, quote, was the most controversial single issue published during the 10 years of the magazine's existence. Mm-hmm. So what happened was, of course, her assistant who was addressing them took this issue to Atlanta to get addressed to kind of outsource the addressing. And Brewer points out that the company that was addressing it had close connections to the Klan and anti-Semitic groups. Mm -hmm. So they obviously read it before they addressed it and Mm -hmm. then started disseminating it, even sending it to mayor Hartsfield and to others who kind of blew their top. And this is the issue that contains probably one of my favorite essays from the, from the magazine. Are we buying a new world with old Confederate bills, which is Mm -hmm. a very inflammatory essay, a very pertinent essay in which she says at one point um, it's time for the white man, or perhaps the white man needs to realize that he's not the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite lines, but there's also in that same issue, a piece called address to intelligent white Southerners. Mm-hmm. There are things to do. Right. And you mention that the FBI added that piece to their file. Right. My kind of question is what was so incendiary about that article
1: anything can appear in a file and some of the stuff in her file is just drivel. It's from yeah, you point uh, that out. premises who had sent in, you know, uh, racist rags and there they are in her file as if they have any bearing upon, you know, anything. But um, I think she knew that she was inflaming uh, her enemies. And that was part of her, her goal, as well as to strengthen the resolve of other white liberals who hadn't made it to her point of courage at this at, at this particular point in time. And she expanded on those things that could be done, of course, in her, and now is the time, her uh, book to help Southerners embrace the Brown decision to desegregate the uh, public schools.
0: And I think that article, there are things to do I've used that article a couple of times. I think it's a really kind of pertinent article and still kind of rings with a lot of things even though some of the things she talks about are specifically for the 40s, but she mm-hmm. talks about, you know, paying paying your domestic servant more, giving her giving right. them more time off. She talks about sitting next to an individual on the bus, right? Things like that. And she lays it out and says, "Well, these are things that won't get you in trouble really, but mm-hmm. and then but these are things you can do that will get you in trouble." But in between all that, one of the things that Kind of views me as inflammatory or incendiary at the time as one referring to um, African Americans as Mr. and Mrs. She lays mm-hmm. that out explicitly. She lays out, you know, give money to um, organizations. Right. And she lays out things that we should even be doing today, like, you know, read books by African American authors, you know, <laughs> do, stuff like simple stuff uh-huh. that people still pay Quite at. radical,
1: I'm sure, you know.
0: Well, That's what I was getting at. They they still seem even quite radical today to a lot Mm -hmm. of people, right? So it's kind of interesting because you mentioned too that Hoover didn't want the civil rights movement to, of course, succeed, right?
1: He did not. And we know, of course, as you mentioned earlier, what he did to uh, work against the efforts of Martin Luther King and others. um,
0: well, even even working against Eleanor Roosevelt, too, which right. was close figures Trump.
1: quite prominently in Smith's file through indirect references and some of the materials that were sent in and her intervention on Smith's behalf in various um, instances.
0: So Eleanor pops up a lot. Can can you talk about that a little bit? Do you remember I wonder anything? Wonder what
1: extent, to what extent, Smith's ideas made it to FDR himself through Eleanor Roosevelt. That would be the interesting thing to know. But uh, um,
0: especially as I told you before we got before we got started, that Smith didn't vote for Roosevelt in one of the elections, and her and Paula. Uh, voted socialist. I don't know Mm -hmm. who the the candidate was or whatever, but they said that somewhere.
1: To make a point, I'm sure. Right. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt uh, is in one of the figures prominently in one of the racist rags that someone sent into the Bureau. Um, It's a denunciation of her work on behalf of of um dismantling white supremacy and it's really a, just an incendiary publication and it's shocking that that much of the file is taken up with that with that particular kind of publication but,
0: you said about one third of the file is taken up with that
1: right right i think about 40 pages yeah
0: yeah so 40 pages out of 134 is taken up with just <laughs> stuff from yes yeah, basically nonsense. southern or northern um racist you know, right. opinion pieces, essentially. Right.
1: With language that we could not use. Um, thankfully, right. now no one. But those same racists would continue to use.
0: So all of that. And there's a lot more about that 1943 incident that I need to dig into. I found out, too, that um, Smith wrote a letter to the assistant's landlord because the her assistant got evicted for that for basically sending South today to the printer or to the addresser to get mailed out. Right. Mm -hmm. There were discussions with the postmaster and the postmistress here in Clayton. Um, I actually found a letter that she wrote to the, to the postmat to the United States postmaster general. So it was, it was a huge thing. And that's a year before we get to strange fruit, Mm -hmm. which adds to her file, but also adds to kind of the involvement of, her being banned and attempted to be silenced. Right. And most of our listeners I'm sure know about the banning of strange fruit in Boston and the, um, the bookseller who sold it and got arrested and all that stuff. And how Eleanor Roosevelt helped to get the novel cleared to go through the mail system um, right. deemed, you know, where it was deemed not obscene. Basically it couldn't mm-hmm. go through the mail cause it was deemed obscene. Right. And you talk about that in your article about the fact that FBI agents are writing to, to Hoover telling him it's obscene, he's like, what part's obscene, basically?
1: (laughs) He himself took an active, uh, he wanted to get to the bottom and finally declared that it could not be held obscene by the statues that were in place and by comparison to other books that had been challenged and deemed not obscene, but he himself took an active interest in it, in it specifically with the sergeant from detroit who is not identified in one part of the file but then is identified in another <laughs> you um the, the redactions aren't always consistent in in the files Can
0: can you tell us a little bit about that that's the question i was going to have so this kind of started with detroit with the detroit agent writing to hoover and can you talk right. to us a little bit about that in was july a, 1944 the sergeant
1: case and he wrote feeling that uh, if he didn't take action against it, his um, people in his community would hold him personally responsible for allowing uh, a book that would um, pervert the thinking of juveniles. (laughs) So he pursued it very ardently, but ultimately Hoover dropped uh, uh, any uh, further pursuit of the novel. Although, of course, he didn't drop his desire to see if Smith could be used in some way to provide information to the Bureau about what he perceived to be fellow travelers or people who had once been sympathetic to the Communist Party, but were now moving away from it and That's really the most frustrating thing about her file, uh, because there's no follow up to that. We don't know if someone interviewed Smith with the pretense that Hoover had devised for the interview.
0: You mentioned that in your article that there was some talk about that, but we just never know from Smith or from the FBI whether that actually occurred. Right. And maybe one day we'll find out, but.
1: It's a hole at this point, but it yeah. is very interesting that Hoover himself thought she might be used um, in some constructive way for their purposes. That's hard to imagine. Smith was too cagey <laughs> to be used in that way.
0: that That's so, a really, I really, I'm starting to think about how re- how she would react to that and what she would do. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that she would be used in that way, but. It's really interesting to kind of think about what her reaction would be and what she would say
1: she has the reputation of course as a cold warrior but her her views on communism are very nuanced they're not uh, um she would not have provided the answers that hoover
0: (laughs) right and and i think a lot of that of course you know comes from you know like like we like you and i talked about before we started recording from china and things like that too and I do know in places that she said that the the way that we treat African Americans with in Jim Crow South and in the United States is not an example for the world. And that's partly why China and parts of Asia went communist. It's kind of her argument too. And that's no, not she's not the one that makes the argument. But she, but she also has these leanings, I think, for a more equitable society through various means through government help right mm-hmm. so i think it is very nuanced and it's something i haven't looked much into but need to look into more i've just kind of seen her comments here and there about it
1: mm-hmm.
0: but you actually give this quote i think this is from smith on page 79 of your article mm-hmm. and this is about mccarthy huh. you know right Smith's contention that mccarthy this is you was not actually against communism deserves close attention for it illuminates her thinking as well as the bureau's mccarthy-like tactics Writing to her friend, Jane Stembridge, Smith said that McCarthy was a quote, was against the future, against change, against all kinds of free creative search for truth. That is why he was so dangerous. And that is why he pulled so many people to him. He was a hater of the human spirit. I fought him because of this. And I fight the red baiters because they are dishonest. It is not that communist evils they dislike, but their virtues. I think that's a really interesting kind of (laughs) statement right there. And these virtues you and I like. I have never known a red baiter who dislikes censorship or curtailment of personal freedom or dictators or the infringement of civil rights. No, what red baiters dislike is the human search for truth, the value we put on man, the person, and man, the human being. That is why they seem dangerous to me. They dislike in communism, their concern for the physical welfare of men and their attempt to abolish poverty. And there's two things that stick out to me with that <laughs> quote. It's an exposition really of one of my favorite kind of things that she says. And I think it's in the right way, it's not the moderate way. Mm-hmm. Um, that the devil stokes within us false hopes and false fears. Mm-hmm. Those creations of false fears. But also there's a comment in here that it's a creation of this fear that McCarthy or others may not believe just so they can maintain a position where they are in control.
1: Right. Right. And that's why I said earlier, if she spoke with the FBI, she could not have given them what they wanted at the time. If she gave them a response like this, that would not be what they were hoping for or anticipating.
0: I wonder what would happen to her if if she gave them the response like that and just said that flat out to
1: them. I can't imagine she wouldn't say it. She never held back, and I I really like the essay. The right way is not a moderate way, and I've I've used it many many times in class to point out that we never praise anyone for being moderately fair or being moderately just or being moderately wise or moderately, you know, intelligent. We praise people for being moderate on issues of race and. Uh,
0: and I think that that's one of my favorite essays too. And part of the, and part of the reason why is, is when she gave it. I mean, it is the, the one-year anniversary. And she didn't deliver it in person, but it's the one-year right. anniversary of right. the Montgomery bus boycotts. Right. But she, she talks about near the end of that, the freedoms that whites are giving up.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I love the story that she says that there was a reporter who called me on the mountain long distance since I didn't give the speech. And the reporter basically said, did you write this? You know, that there's parts you here that don't sound like you. And she's like, what parts? Read them. And she read it, He read her like those parts, you know, that whites are giving up these freedoms. Uh-huh. He's like, absolutely. We did write it. You know, what, the, <laughs> you know, do you agree with this? And she, he was like, yeah. <laughs> so it's really kind of, it's a really interesting speech for a lot of reasons. And I think that's a speech where she mentions compares racism to cancer too. Right. I could be wrong.
1: I think you're right.
0: Um, but that, that whole speech. So That leaves us with this question. So ultimately, you know, for today, what should we take away from the surveillance of Lillian Smith? I mean, I could ask you just about her works, but, you know, what should we take away from the fact that
1: she was surveilled, right? Um, Well, you know, near the end of the article, I cite Ramsey Clark, the former attorney general, and he says that writers and shakers and the police will always fear writers because of their capacity, I'm sorry, I'm misreading that. Writers are shakers and the police will always fear writers because of their capacity to destabilize. Uh, I think it's always been true, Clark says. Writers are more dangerous than others. They're the undercover agents of the other side, in a way. So Smith was surveyed because she was perceived as an, as Clark says, as an undercover agent. She was undercovering the the forces that sustained white supremacy and rigid gender norms. And she was feared for that. She had an audience. She was promoting change. So that's why she was surveyed. um, I would, I would submit. Um,
0: I think she views herself as an artist in that capacity, even though she wanted to be, removed from being a race artist and pigeonholed as that right right you know she wanted to connect humans and to bring humans together mm-hmm. and that's what she talks about that's kind of the quote i read earlier too
1: yes she did you know, resent being pigeonholed but she she still used the platform right. that she had created to advance her 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 causes she understood the importance of it yes i i agree um, So
0: there's a lot more we could talk about with Smith, but I think we'll leave it there for today.
1: Thank you for spending time with us. Oh, thank you. I hope that uh, was useful. (laughs) It was.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media, or get in touch with us at LES Center at Piedmont.edu. You can learn more about living at East Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu/les.